Good evening, this is Rob McClure here with your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Longtime Wisconsin Secretary of State Doug LaFollette will likely face a Democratic challenger in a primary on August 9th. Alexia Sabor, chair of the Dane County Democratic Party, is a self-described, in her words, politigeek, environmentalist, foodie, and patient advocate. LaFollette has won 10 statewide elections for Secretary of State and has also run for Lieutenant Governor and U.S. Senate. In two of those elections, LaFollette was the only Democratic candidate to have won statewide office. The race for Secretary of State has unusual importance to Democrats this year because Republican legislators have attempted to transfer the oversight of elections from the Bipartisan Elections Commission to the partisan Secretary of State's office. If a Republican is elected governor, this will likely be part of the GOP agenda. Whoever wins in the Democratic primary will face Republican candidate State Representative Amy Loudenbeck. The Iowa Utilities Board says work can continue on a power line between Dubuque and Middleton despite a court order blocking the Mississippi River part of the crossing. According to a report by the Wisconsin State Journal, the board denied petitions by powerline opponents who sought to halt construction on the Cardinal Hickory Creek project in light of a federal judge's ruling that it could not cross the Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife and Fish Refuge. Opponents argued that without the crossing, the utilities continuing construction of the line resulted in recklessly spending ratepayers' dollars. In January, a federal judge agreed with the conservation groups that sued to stop the $492 million project, saying that it's incompatible with the mission of the refuge, which covers 261 miles of the river. The Madison Metropolitan School District is adding required asynchronous learning on Mondays beginning next week. This was communicated in an email sent to parents earlier today. The schedule change will allow the district to reach the state-mandated number of instructional hours for students this year. The district requested a waiver from the Department of Public Instruction, but that was denied. The letter turning down the request stated that the district had adequate time to adjust the calendar to provide the required hours or use options such as innovative instructional design. K-12 students will have 90 to 120 minutes of asynchronous learning each Monday from April 25th through June 6th, with Friday, May 27th, also an asynchronous learning day. Elementary and middle school students' learning will focus on literacy and math, while high school students will focus on college and career readiness. Those are the headlines for this evening. On, on to the rest of the day's top stories. Madison's Lake Mendota Drive has long been considered one of the city's historic parkways. The tree-covered street that hugs the shore of Lake Mendota is riddled with potholes, though, and in need of repair. But the city's plan to fix that has generated considerable comment from property owners in the area. Our reporter, Catherine Garvins, has the details. 
In March of this year, the Capital Times reported nearly 200 area residents had expressed opposition to a plan to reconstruct 1.2 miles of Lake Minota Drive over a three-year period. The proposal includes repaving the historic parkway, adding gutters and curbs to improve stormwater treatments, and adding sidewalks to increase pedestrian safety. The project came to a head at last night's Madison Common Council meeting. For months, some residents have been asking the city to slow their role on the project. Critics say the project, specifically a proposal to include sidewalks on the road, would disrupt the history and culture of the neighborhood, which is on the National Register of Historic Places, and result in a loss of convenient parking. They are also concerned with the environmental impacts of the project, from the loss of dozens of trees to concerns over the project's impact on water quality. Maureen Rickman resides in the area and is co-leader of the newly minted Friends of Mendota group. Water protection must be the city's priority. Anything less is short-sighted. Water will continue to flow. The city must assure that the water flowing to the lake is clean, that drinking water flowing to our faucets is safe, and that the water flowing around our homes doesn't flood them. Decisions about protecting the water will, will have consequences for generations to come. She adds that sidewalks are not the only alternative to provide pedestrian safety. There can be pedestrian walkways made of permeable pavement. They can be connected directly to the road with angled gutters. That protects the water, that provides equitable access to social recreation. It increases visibility of pedestrians, which improves safety. Mark Clear, former alder of the district, spoke in support of proceeding with the plan, saying that the controversy over repair of the stretch of road is not new. I did represent this area of the city on the Common Council from 2007 to 2018. And over those 11 years, there were many, many conversations about Lake Mendota Drive. And they started right when I was first sworn in 15 years and, and two days ago. People often ask me when the pavement would be replaced because the pavement was in terrible condition then and it has not gotten better over time. And my answer was always the same, that the pavement would be replaced when curb and gutter and sidewalk would be installed to make it a complete street. That was usually the end of the conversation and I did not have the fortitude that Alder Furman has demonstrated uh, to bring this project forward. In the early hours of this morning, the plan was approved on a 12-8 to 8 vote after a previous motion to delay the project failed. The project will be done in phases in 2022, 2023, and 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. And that was hardly the only issue brought up at last night's Common Council meeting, which went on until the early hours of this morning. For everything else that took place, here's WORT producer Nate Weggehelt. And if staff are still awake and with us, uh, they do have a short presentation on this. Last night's Marathon Common Council meeting lasted into the early morning hours, clocking in at more than nine hours considering city business. The meeting kicked off with the election of a new council president and vice president. Former President Syed Abbas announced late last week that he will be running for state assembly and will not be running again for the position. Alder Keith Furman was elected the council's new council president. Alder Nasra Wahili was also nominated but lost to Keith Furman by a 11 to nine margin. Earlier this year, Alder Wahili, along with fellow Alder Barbara Harrington-McKinney, publicly resigned from a city committee 
headed by Alder Furman out of protest over his leadership. The Alders alleged Furman was abusing his authority as head of the task force and ignoring the voices of black women on the task force. Furman told WORT in February that he took inclusion seriously and that the issues had more to do with all task members being present at the meetings. In response, Wahili, with Alders Abbas, Sherry Carter, and Gary Halverson, issued a resolution to implement a harassment and discrimination policy for the Common Council. That resolution was supposed to be discussed last night, but was postponed to next month so the Council can have more time with the policy. Meanwhile, Alder J.L. Curry defeated Charles Miadzi in a 12-8 vote to become the Council's new vice president. After several hours of public comment, the Council unanimously approved sitting the new permanent men's homeless shelter on Bartillon Drive. That process had not been without incident. After Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced the location last month, Madison Alders on the city's east side held a press conference of their own to voice their displeasure with the mayor, taking issue with her communication of the decision. While the location had been discussed and supported by Alders in closed-session finance committee meetings, some Alders said the mayor should have gone through the council before making her announcement. Next, in a 12-8 decision, the council voted to implement a new monthly recycling fee for Madison homeowners. Called the Resource Recovery Special Charge, the charge is intended to keep pace with the increasing cost of the city's recycling contracts and comes to an added $50 a year. David Schmidtke is the finance director of the city of Madison. Our revenues do not grow with our cost to maintain current services. We also have um, very strict limits on other revenue options. Resource recovery special charge is one of those very few options. It is an independent funding source to support the recycling program. It's envisioned to be implemented uh, halfway through the year in 2022. That's one and a half million. And it would generate a, the full $3 million for next year's budget. So it does have yet another effect in 2023. If it's not adopted, uh, the budget does have that gap. The council also unanimously approved the next step of bus rapid transit, a measure to purchase 46 fully electric buses for the city, as well as to map out exactly where the BRT route would travel around Madison. The plan was approved by the city's Transportation Commission last week. Finally, the council approved a controversial measure to initiate a pilot program for body-worn cameras for Madison police officers. Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes spoke with WORT earlier this week about his views on the pilot program and was on hand at the council meeting to voice his support for the resolution. He says that there have been misconceptions about how the department would use body cameras. There is some confusion um, regarding uh, our stance on immigration. Uh, we do not participate uh, in those types of activities. We don't turn over video and or uh, information uh, with ICE. If it would have to be uh, a life or death situation in order to do that. I don't think we've done that in the past and certainly we haven't done it uh, during my administration. Body cameras remained a controversial topic for some alders. Newly elected council president Keith Furman took issue with the cost. So I, I did not vote to authorize the continuation of developing a pilot last night. I'm uh, incredibly worried about our structural deficit. We had a vote last night where we had to approve another revenue stream for the city because we are struggling to balance our budget with our current services because the cost of services continue to increase every year and our ability to raise revenue does not increase at the same pace. 
And so when you look at the body-worn camera, there are certainly a lot of debates about whether or not it's something that works and provides value. I, I understand and respect those arguments. Um, but for me, ultimately, I'm worried about the cost. Ultimately, the resolution to begin a pilot program narrowly passed just before 4 a.m. with an 11 to 9 vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Earlier today, state lawmakers heard from constituents on their opinions of medical cannabis. 37 other states already have legal medical or recreational weed, with Mississippi the very latest to join in. Our reporter Jade Isiri Ramos was at the state capitol earlier today. Just coincidence that it's 4:20 today, or is it? <laughs> oh, yeah, Mary picked the date. <laughs> it does coincide so pretty good. So this goes to show you. Um, this was a day that worked for all of the people on the committee. I'm sorry, I was totally clueless on what 4:20's <laughs> reference was. Maybe that shows my age. Oh. <laughs> State Senator Mary Falskowski, a Republican from Irma, is the co-author of the Limited Medical Cannabis Bill. Under the bill, patients could get a recommendation from a doctor for a 30-day supply of cannabis. Qualifying conditions include Crohn's disease, seizure disorders, cancer, PTSD, and HIV-AIDS. Medical marijuana is not going to help everyone, but for those people that it does help, it helps them greatly, and it should not be denied to them. And for physicians, it's one more tool in the toolbox. As the bill is currently written, no smokable weed would be allowed. That means no flower and no vapes. Senator Falskowski points to the concern of secondhand smoke as a reason for this exclusion. The hearing today was actually monumental. I've been here almost two decades. In two decades, there's been two hearings. Senator Lena Taylor, a Democrat from Milwaukee, says she ultimately supports full legalization. When you look at incarceration rates for the issue and how things are treated, not only in the police departments, but in the district attorney's offices. It is significantly different when you have skin that looks like this versus skin that looks like this. So to that point, I'm saddened by the legislation because I want more. But I've been in this building for two decades. So I understand that sometimes you make one move so that you can at least move to the door. However, not all lawmakers are supportive of the bill. Senator Melissa Agard, a Democrat representing Madison, has long championed full cannabis legalization in Wisconsin. And she does not support Falskowski's bill as it is written. And we need to be putting aside the letters besides our names and doing this earnestly in the best interests of everyone in our state. There's too much on the table. Alan Robinson, owner of Herbal Aspect LLC, testified about the anecdotal benefits of CBD he has witnessed from customers. CBD is a chemical found in marijuana and it does not include THC. CBD can legally be purchased in Wisconsin. There are over 113 cannabinoid constituents in the cannabis plant. There's so much about the cannabis plant that we don't know and how these cannabinoids interact with either our endocannabinoid system or themselves. Representative Rachel Cabral-Guberra is a Republican from Appleton. She is also a nurse practitioner, and she has largely seen patients use cannabis to manage pain and anxiety. If we can utilize this medication to alleviate some of the other, uh, you know, abuse issues that I've seen without the, without the state here and not go within the world of alcohol and narcotics, I'm going to continue to be in full support of this bill. The bill is now headed back to Felskowski's desk for revisions and to be reintroduced next January. That's the next time the legislation is in session. A Marquette law poll from 2019 
found that 83% of Wisconsinites support medical marijuana. Each state neighboring Wisconsin has legalized marijuana to some degree, leaving us the hole in the donut of weed legalization. Reporting for WORD News, I'm Jada Siri Ramos. And the time is now 6.22, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last night, the Marathon County Board in central Wisconsin voted to disband the Diversity Affairs Commission after they proposed a, quote, community for all resolution last year. That resolution quickly became about much more than just inclusivity within Marathon County, at least in the eyes of area residents. Earlier today, our producer, Nate Wegehaupt, spoke with Rob Menser. Menser, apologies, uh, the assistant uh, news director and rural communities reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio about the Marathon County Board. So to start things off here, what was the community for all resolution and why were Marathon County residents so upset? So community for all, the the resolution came out of sort of the um, the social justice movement in, in 2020 and there were big marches all over the the country in the in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Wausau was one of the places that had that sort of movement there was big demonstration thousands of people it was literally one of the largest political gatherings in the history of the city and so um this this diversity affairs commission uh and and others you know sort of supporters saw expressing this community for all resolution as an outgrowth of that um, and a way to put into the, you know, sort of the record <laughs> for the county that, um, that, that diversity is a strength here and these sorts of, these sorts of values. Um, what happened, though, uh, in 2021 is there was a backlash to the broader movement, right? And, and and in a way, community for all was caught up in that. It became a stand-in for um, all kinds of broader social justice, critical race theory. You know, all, all these sorts of um, uh, buzzwords in national politics became a part of the way that people in the local community talked about this. What it was really just an advisory resolution. It didn't. It didn't set a policy. It didn't do anything. But um, but it, but because it was connected with the the social justice movement, there were conservatives and and people in the community who saw it as something to defeat. And now, last night, the Marathon County Board voted to disband the Diversity Affairs Commission. Can you tell me a little bit about that commission and the board and why the board decided to? disband them? So the Diversity Affairs Commission was created sometime after 2016 in Marathon County, and a lot of places have um, uh, boards like this. Uh, And the idea is to, for one thing, to get participation in local government from people of different backgrounds, different um, uh, ethnicities, and so on. 
and because because as we all know, sometimes those people don't necessarily run for or win local office, especially in smaller communities. That's not always the case, and so and so that's one that's one function of uh, diversity affairs commission. And another is to try to look at the policies and try to promote um, policies that will that will address racial disparities that will improve equality in the community. So that's what the Diversity Affairs Commission was was tasked with, and it existed well before this fight existed. But, um, but it was out of the Diversity Affairs Commission that the Community for All resolution came. And so um, that when that became a major sort of flashpoint in Marathon County last year, uh, it, 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 it lost. I don't know if I said this. It was defeated. There was a tie vote in August, um, and it lost. The, the, the Community for All resolution was not uh, uh, adopted as a result of that. But then it sort of didn't go away. A lot of, a lot of candidates for a Marathon County Board in this spring's election ran against it, um, critical of the, the board members who promoted it or spent the board's time working on it and, uh, and so on. And so this was the first board meeting of the newly elected Marathon County Board. And there was a lot of new members, a lot of them who ran explicitly on, um, combating this, this, these efforts. And so one of their, their first action was to eliminate this, the board that had, um, you know, push for this resolution. And now looking back at sort of this last year, can you sort of walk me through some of the history between this resolution, the Diversity Affairs Commission, residents of Marathon County, and then also sort of on a national level, I know it got some attention as well. Why are the people of Marathon County so hesitant to call themselves a community for all? Well, you know, I I need to explain to the to the Madison WORT audience that Marathon County is uh, contains a lot of different sorts of people, right? Um, and and if, and so Community for All is pretty popular in the city of Wausau. It's the largest city in the county. It's not a real large city, but um, but within Wausau, it has a lot of support. And um, the mayor Katie Rosenberg here in Wausau. Uh, declared WASA community for all in the midst of the, uh, the the sort of fighting about this uh, last year, and that was like well a well received um, uh, move. Now Marathon County is really big, and there's a whole lot of rural areas, and there's a lot of areas that are that are much more sort of politically conservative, and um, and who who quite clearly have a have a very different view on these issues. Um, the uh, the the national attention that you're referring to was. Uh, the New York Times came here last summer and wrote a, a, a long story. It was a front page story about the the, the rancor around this um, this issue and the exact way that it had blown up. Um, and you know that's not that's not the sort of publicity that I think a lot of towns want to uh, want to get. Right there, this is like this. It was a, an example of a of a bad rancorous debate. Um, but the, but the reality is that people don't feel all one way in this, in this community, right? So Wassa has a large Hmong population. There's increasing numbers of, of Hispanic and black uh, residents in the, in, in Wassa and across Marathon County. And so like, you know, I, one thing that this debate reflects is uh, that, that the communities are changing and some there, you know, inevitably there are some people who like, don't 
like to see that change. I've been talking with Rob Menser, assistant news director and rural communities reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio, about the Marathon County Board decision to eliminate their Diversity Affairs Commission. You can read Rob's full article online at WPR.org. Rob, thank you again for joining me here today. Thank you. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. We've got... We'll be talking with two teams of students heading to the National Rocketry Competition. You don't want to miss that. Madison in the 60s looks at urban renewal and dogs running wild in public parks. And, of course, all the details about the weather. But first, we'll go back to London for news from around the world. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us. The National Rocketry Competition takes place each year in Virginia, and this year, two teams from Madison West High School are going to compete. Earlier this week, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with three student rocket scientists about what it takes to make it to the national competition. Joining us now are student rocket designers from one of those Madison West teams. First up is Amelia Nicometto. Welcome, Amelia. Hello. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. Also joining us is Oliver Gartler. Welcome, Oliver. Hi. Hi. Good morning. And finally, we have Natalie Lesniak. Welcome, Natalie. Hello. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on making the finals. Now, 720 teams from around the country competed in the initial round of the American Rocketry Challenge. What was that assignment, and how did your team meet the challenge? Natalie, let's start with you. So, the assignment was, as you said, to fly to 835 feet in 41 to 44 seconds. And we had to get as close to that as possible to qualify. And we all put our scores in at the end. And whoever got the closest, uh, those top 100 teams are the ones going to nationals. So the challenge for the first round is the same as the as in the final round. Is that correct? In the final round, we are going to either 860 feet or 810 feet. And... Uh, as we're on the launch pad, they're going to flip a coin, and then that's going to determine which height we go to. Wow. So you, so how much time do you have to prepare for that change in trajectory? Um, not much. I don't actually know the exact amount, but not much. So, Oliver, tell us a little bit about how you plan for an assignment like this. Do you spend a lot of time running calculation spreadsheets, or do you just build something and see if it works? Um, well, we build the rockets and then we fly them a lot and then we can calibrate it to fly to a certain target by adding or losing weight. So, so it's a and little bit, a little bit of both trial and error. Uh, yeah. And tell us about some of the failures. What happens when it doesn't work? Um, well, if the parachute doesn't deploy, then the rocket crashes and we have to do some repairs usually not like build an entire new rocket, but we have to re-glue in sometimes. And uh, so tell us about this particular challenge. Um, how did you go about trying to meet this, this particular challenge of delivering two raw eggs up in the air and coming back? What were some of the things you were thinking about? 
Um, well, we have to have ample uh, protection for the eggs inside the rocket. Uh, we usually have insulation, like little capsules of insulation. Uh, and then we can also use a motor that has it's a more powerful burst at the start instead of a gradual acceleration up. And that, I guess, it helps with not cracking the eggs. Okay. Amelia Nicomero, tell us um, tell us about the Madison West team. Now, now the three of you are on one team, is that correct, in Madison West? Um, so we're on two different teams. Okay. Um, I'm on team one, and Natalie is on um, team two. And um, I've participated in this rocketry challenge. Uh, this is my second time now. I've been a part of the club all four years of high school, and it's been a really amazing experience for me. And what got you interested in rocketry? Um, I think going into West High School, I had heard about the prestige of the club. You know, we also do some other programs working with NASA um, and build really incredible rockets um, and scientific experiments and projects. So I just wanted to be a part of that. And it's become a really great community for me and uh, an amazing learning experience. Now, is there any rivalry between the two Madison West teams? I mean, a little bit of friendly rivalry definitely um, is helpful and helps us grow. Um, but we're very friendly. We're always collaborating at the launch together. And really before, like, the finalists are announced, we're, we're just one big team. So what what is the significance of, of Madison's attending two teams to the finals? And as you mentioned, you, you uh, Madison West has got a bit of prestige here, something of a powerhouse in this, and they last won the national championship in 2019. Now you're sending two teams to the, to the finals. How did Madison West get to be such a powerhouse in rocketry? Yeah, I think it's really our mentors, um, Pavel Pincus and uh, Miss Hager here at West High School, um, they're really incredible mentors, and they push us to just try our best and also get lots and lots of practice launches in on weekends. And, yeah, we really just we practice, we collaborate, we have our workshop space, and we um, utilize it. We have workshops every Friday night um, and sometimes all days on Saturdays when we need it. So we really we put in the work, and it pays off, um, and we're so lucky to be sending two teams this year. And where do you launch from? Um, a few different places. Uh, one of them is Bong Recreation Area, um, and another is uh, a launch field in uh, Princeton, Illinois. So pretty pretty remote areas uh, to fly our rockets. So there's a fair amount of travel involved, too, then. That must take a lot of time. There is. Yes, it does. Um, and during COVID, you know, carpool was less, less achievable. So during those years, um, it was definitely you know, a struggle to get everyone out to the launches um, and the rockets built. All of it was definitely um, sometimes a bit of a hardship, but it's, it's paid off and we're, we're so lucky to be like launching um, as a big, bigger groups again. So tell us about uh, your future a little bit. I mean, is it, do you think that rocketry is, is a career that you may be pursuing uh, in the future? Is that something that you have a long-term interest in or is this just a hobby? Oliver Gartler, let's uh, start with you. Potentially it could be. I really enjoy it. And obviously once you get into the professional area, it's less little rockets. It's more of working on a team of a hundred people on one large rocket, but yeah, it 
I, I think that could be a career choice. And uh, Natalie Lesniak, uh, tell us about your, your future plans. Is rocketry uh, something that you want to do for the rest of your life? Rocketry has been something that I've been looking at. And really, it kind of opens a door to anything in STEM and engineering and technology, which is something I definitely would go into, which is not necessarily rocketry, but I would definitely go into something similar. What What is similar to rocketry? Um, Anything building, anything like airplanes, honestly, cars. A lot of like engineering design that takes place in those areas. Uh, Amelia and Nico Meadow, how about you? Is this uh, something that you look at as a hobby or as a possible future career choice? Um, you know, I'm a senior this year, and it's definitely sparked a lot of interest for me in engineering. But I'm also just really passionate about STEM in general. So I think I am going to pursue a degree in chemistry in, as my undergraduate. But I'm I'm not sure where it'll take me. And you know, the amazing thing about rocket club is that we've designed scientific payloads and different things to go in our rockets and so there's a lot of variety and there's a lot of different people in the club um, who want to go into different things and have you been following uh the latest uh reports out of nasa and uh spacex i mean are there are there rocket examples that you're particularly excited about um i mean there's a lot of different examples obviously what spacex x does is so incredible um and I'm always excited for their launches and watching the countdown. So um, that's always really fun sometimes. And Natalie, Lesniak, how about you? What, what piques your interest in, in rocketry these days? Um, a lot of things pique my interest. Uh, I heard it first uh, on a club fair. And I also knew Amelia before I actually came to West High School. So I'm a freshman this year. So I knew her as a junior. So I knew she was on the club and I knew she liked it a lot. So I thought I would try it out because I was interested in STEM and I was interested in, you know, space travel and airplanes and all that good stuff. So, yeah. And Oliver, how about you? What what do you find interesting about rocketry? Uh, I follow a lot of the, like, the big companies that are doing their launches and that's really interesting. I have a lot of their stuff on Instagram. So I get to see when they launch, I see videos of that. That's cool. All right. We've been speaking with Madison West High School Rocketry team members, Amelia Nicometo, Oliver Gartler, and Natalie Lesniak. The national finals of the American Rocketry Challenge take place on May 14th in the Plains, Virginia. Amelia, Oliver, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you. Thank you. And from rocketry to other aspects of the atmosphere... Well, we may have a rather less spectacular storm moving through the upper Midwest this evening than on the past three Wednesdays, but we've seen some sustained winds up toward 30 miles per hour this afternoon with gusts of 40 or better, so this uh, system is uh, no piddler. The strong winds were in part the result of a low-level jet nosing into the area from the south around 2 o'clock this afternoon, up at about 4,000 feet above ground level. That stream of faster winds has since deepened earthward to about 2,500 feet or so with velocities up there at 50 or 60 miles per hour. So that'll keep the lower atmosphere well stirred and the winds active for a while yet this evening. Though the jet axis will uh, shift eastward overnight as the low pressure system sponsoring it passes eastward through southern Canada. 
Though southerly winds also brought a lot of uh, moisture and warmer temperatures up in the second mile above ground level. That saturated up uh, several thousand vertical feet up there. And that cloud layer has, uh, in the past few hours, been experiencing enough lift and cooling from the approaching cold front to condense out some showers of rain, which have been passing. Lapse rates are pretty modest up through, say, 10 or 12,000 feet, and there's just minimal potential instability up above that. So I'm not expecting uh, much of anything in the way of thunder with these passing showers this evening. The cold front, which will be veering winds westerly later tonight, will be bearing in drier but hardly cooler air. So with sunshine and good deep low-level mixing tomorrow, I think we're likely to reach 60 degrees or better. And that'll set us up for our next storm, which will be passing this coming weekend, which I storm which I previewed uh, at least briefly on the Monday morning forecast. The uh, longer-range models at that point were still in great disharmony about what was going to happen basically after this coming Saturday. There's a little bit more unanimity on the storm at this point. The uh, major change since this past Monday is... Uh, Consensus that the storm is going to make uh, slightly slower progress as it lifts northeastward past us up the plains this weekend, owing to its occlusion uh, around about Saturday evening when the surface circulation will be up over uh, North Dakota or northwestern Minnesota. That's going to retard the cold frontal passage until sometime on Sunday and make the transition to cooler air up fairly gradual one after our warmest readings on the late period in the day Saturday. So without a terribly strong low-level boundary approaching and with the other dynamics of this system fairly far removed from us up in uh, northwestern uh, Minnesota, I'm not looking for anything in the way of severe uh, weather once uh, showers and thunderstorms start to blow up to our west on Saturday afternoon or evening. Those storms will then press east and northeastward across the area through the overnight period, though I should say that uh, both the Global Forecast Systems model and the European show some reasonably strong cells with that convective line. Uh, We will be cooler for the early part of next week, but the major models are both indicating modest rewarming through the balance of the week, with the uh, wave train in the upper air remaining generally fairly progressive as it is at the moment, so that'll prevent any passing storms dragging significant or prolonged cold air down this way. But uh, back to tonight, showers will continue to lift northeastward across the area for another uh, hour or two anyway. It looks like a patch of heavy rain has just passed through the Madison area with drying now in southwestern Dane County and parts southwest from there. So I'm expecting in general the showers to be lighter from about 7 o'clock forward, and they should end... I think in a couple or three hours, if not before, temperatures will drop only marginally into the low 40s as skies clear and winds veer westerly and lighten up as we get on towards morning. Tomorrow, decreasing morning clouds as the system works to the east should allow temperatures by mid-afternoon or so to reach 60 with the aid of westerly winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. High clouds will work into the area in the evening and then thicken steadily overnight as light northwesterly winds veer easterly by Friday morning. Temperatures will hold in the lower mid-40s overnight. Showers will approach from the uh, south and west then as we enter the day Friday with steady rain setting up for a while, probably from the mid-morning onward for at least a few hours in there. Temperatures will reach... 
Uh, perhaps the low 50s. They'll be held down by cloud cover and east-southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 miles per hour. It's possible we'll start to see some passing thunderstorms later in the afternoon as the warm sector starts to approach from the south. Some models have, uh, have us uh, clearing our skies actually fairly early on Friday evening or overnight, but uh, rains in any event should knock off at some point overnight, and veering southerly winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour should uh, raise temperatures as we go through the overnight period, perhaps up to 60 degrees or better by the time Saturday morning comes around. And we're likely to see a fair bit of passing low cumulus blowing northward through skies on Saturday. But with a fair bit of sunshine as well, I think we'll get temperatures into the 70s, actually fairly well into the 70s, perhaps uh, into the upper 70s, with dew points hitting the low 60s on south-southwesterly winds, which will be up at 10 to 20 miles per hour. Showers and thunderstorms will pass eastward across the area in the late evening or overnight period, at least on current model timing, and temperatures will drop to around 60 by Sunday morning on what will be veering southwesterly winds, still up fairly actively overnight. And Sunday may see some additional passing showers, but I'm expecting uh, mostly just passing cloud cover during the day, with the temperature holding in the low 60s will be slightly cooler than that down in the 50s on Monday. We have a current temperature of 43 degrees at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 41. Winds are out of the south at 20 miles per hour, still gusting above 30 over recent time. And we're overcast at about 3,300 feet with light rain. The barometer reading is at 29.83 inches of mercury and falling. Time is now 6.49 and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. We go now to April 1964 when civil rights, urban renewal, and dogs running free dominated the political debate. Here's Stu Levitan with tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, April 1964. As the month opens, members of the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, are continuing their boycott and picketing of the Sears store on East Washington Avenue, where only one of the store's 321 employees is black, a maintenance worker. CORE Publicity Director Leah Zeldin says many customers have canceled their store charge accounts in support of CORE's demand the store hire more black workers. 
Although CORE does not file a formal complaint with the Equal Opportunities Commission, the EOC holds a public hearing under its plenary power to investigate possible discrimination. About 60 persons attend the April 6th hearing, where the testimony is compelling but inconclusive. When the EOC closes its file without action on April 14th, Sears has three full-time and four part-time black employees. Core President Silas Norman congratulates the store and urges it to do more. The country's most prominent opponent of the civil rights bill being debated in Congress and one of its most important supporters both visit Madison this month. On April 2nd, about 20 core activists picket in the cold rain as Alabama Governor George Wallace brings his campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination to the West Side for a speech to the Madison Exchange Club at the Cuba Club. Wallace denies he is racially prejudiced and draws applause for his attack on the pending federal civil rights bill as something, quote, that will destroy the constitutional rights of everybody. Club members give him a warm reception. On the 25th, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, a co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, rouses a Capitol Square crowd of about 500 with his emphatic call for adoption of state and federal civil rights legislation. UW freshman Tracy Nelson, the young folk blues singer from Shorewood Hills, is among the entertainers at the rally sponsored by the Madison Committee for Civil Rights. On the 27th, about 30 college and high school students from the Madison Corps chapter, sitting in the balcony of the assembly chambers, engage in the first civil rights demonstration to disrupt the Wisconsin legislature in support of their demand for a special session on civil rights legislation. While the assembly sergeant-at-arms brusquely confiscates their several unauthorized signs, the group stands to sing, We Shall Overcome, annoying the assembly so much it adjourns. There are no arrests, and the group marches out singing. Corp Chapter Chair Silas Norman opposes the action and resigns, and leaves about a month later for the Selma Literacy Project. He is succeeded by Bortai Scudder, daughter of British modernist poet Basil Bunting. Residents of the Greenbush neighborhood had been angry at the Madison Redevelopment Authority for years over the way it turned their homes and businesses into the Triangle Urban Renewal Project. But it was only when the MRA started looking at property around the university that political opposition became a threat. A group composed largely of small property owners called the Madison Homeowners Association filed almost 8,000 signatures and gets a referendum on the April ballot to, quote, terminate all urban renewal activities and abolish the MRA. The entire political establishment, Mayor Henry Reynolds, University President Fred Harvey Harrington, and both newspapers all forcefully oppose the referendum. But on April 7th, the vote comes down to the last precinct reporting, with 36,665 votes cast, representing 70% of registered voters the MRA survives by 367 votes, 18,516 to 18,149. The Ninth Ward, home of the Triangle and Brittingham projects, and the Near East Side Sixth Ward, where many are bitterly opposed to an ongoing study of the Marquette neighborhood, both vote heavily to end all urban renewal activities, while the 14th Ward, where residents favor the South Madison project, votes heavily to continue. It's strong support from West Side wards that keep the MRA alive. 
But urban renewal itself kills the political careers of two East Side incumbent alders, including a member of the MRA, the sixth ward alder who sponsored the MRA's study in the neighborhood. The MRA's public relations consultant later says they should have built low-cost public housing as their first project next to Brittingham Park rather than the market-rate apartments they approved. And in another kind of development, on the 24th, a proposal to transform State Street. Madison Properties Incorporated, the development firm owned by Gerald Bartell and Robert Brooks, announces plans for a 10-story Holiday Inn in the 400 block of State Street, with the entry to its 167-car garage off West Wilman Street. The parcel has been vacant since Victor Music burned down in December 1961. Bartell says he is an accepted offer from Meyer Victor and hopes to begin construction by late July. Big doings on campus the weekend of the 17th and 18th. While the legendary Bo Diddley rocks the military ball in Great Hall on Friday night with Ken Animani's band The Night Trains on the bill, folk singer Guy Carawan, the man who first popularized We Shall Overcome, is singing for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the University YMCA. Saturday night, it's a Bo Diddley album and nickel bags of popcorn for the thousand who pack Great Hall for the Student Peace Center's 8th Annual Anti-Military Ball. There's great live music, too, for the largest turnout yet. Tracy Nelson, sitting in with a Johnny Calba blues band. Responding to the release earlier this year of the Surgeon General's report linking cigarettes to lung cancer, the Common Council for the first time sets a city age limit on smoking. Reasoning that smoking and drinking beer should have the same legal age, the Council initially sets the smoking age at 18. But after the Madison Youth Council calls this an infringement of personal liberty and urges education rather than enforcement, the council reverses its decision and sets the legal smoking age to 16. Madison Youth Council Vice President Eugene Parks, noting the many alders smoking during the meeting, says his group doesn't condone smoking, but, quote, we feel this is the responsibility of the youth and his parents. Nadine Goff, editor of the Central High School Mirror, tells the council that a survey shows that almost 30% of Central Senior High students and nearly 20% of Junior High students smoke or had smoked. And after receiving many complaints about dogs running loose in city parks, the Parks Commission bans man's best friend from seven city parks. Maybe we need a dog park, suggests Commissioner Mrs. George Hansen. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporting were Catherine Garvins and Jade Isiri Ramos. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz and Stu Levitan. Nate Wiggy helped produce the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. She also sat in on engineering duties this evening, seamlessly mixing our sounds. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Up next is Query. That'll be followed by This Way Out at 7.30. And we'll be back in your ears tomorrow night at 6 with all of tomorrow's news. So tune in then. Good night. W-O-R-T Madison.